Beautiful, beautiful, geeky people, how on earth are you? Welcome back to Geeking with Destination Venus Radio here once again with yet another hour of geeky news, views, reviews and other generally geeky stuff. Now, first of all, before we get started, just want to give a big shout out to everyone, and I do mean everyone, even you. Yep, in fact, do you know what? Particularly you, who came down to Geek Retreat on Saturday for the Pride event. It was not the sparkliest of prides. It was not the busiest of prides. It was certainly not the biggest of prides. But between Geek Retreat and Major Tom's social in the evening, which I did not go to because I'm very, very old, it was a successful pride. And given that there hasn't been a pride event in Harrogate for a couple of years now, that was nice. So big shout out to all the people I met. Uh, Some new people, hopefully some new friends. It was, as ever, unrelentingly positive and supportive and generally kind, which is what I like about Pride, to be honest. As the token straight in the room, it was um, good to be there. So hopefully, 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 hopefully next week we build and it gets bigger. So we will see what 2024 will bring and we will move on to the geeky news. This news really changes everything. Am I the only one who finds themselves subconsciously clicking their fingers when that comes on? No? Just me? Okay. And we'll start with a bit of positive comics news. Because, my goodness, there's not enough good work, good news going on in the world at the moment. So, news. This week, saw the release of Ms. Marvel, the new mutant issue one. Which is a comic I am still vaguely irritated about because we've talked about this before, but just very quickly. Ms. Marvel, who is one of the most fun characters in the Marvel Universe, was created as an Inhuman. Now, the Inhumans are a group of humany people who have alien DNA, which can if they are exposed to a particular kind of gas called pterogen, be activated to give them powers, or at least to make them different. Sometimes your pterogen mutation is profoundly inconvenient. Other times, it's amazing. It's kind of a look-of-the-draw style thing. A whole load of backstory to the Inhumans, and it is basically now ignored by Marvel. There was a brief period a few years ago, when Marvel were really pushing the Inhumans. And the reason they were was they didn't own the rights to the X-Men as movie characters. And somewhere at Marvel, a decision was made to say, do you know what? We are tired of pushing Fox's increasingly terrible X-Men movies. We are tired of helping to promote what we regard as terrible movies you made using our IP that we can't make good movies with. So we're just not going to do X-Men comics anymore. And instead of the X-Men, we'll have the Inhumans, who are basically like the X-Men if we choose to use them like that. After all, both the Inhuman gene and the X-gene basically both exist as an excuse to give characters superpowers so we don't have to keep making people radioactive. And honestly, that's almost certainly a direct quote 
from a Marvel editorial meeting. Trust me, I know these things. Anyway, the point is that the Inhumans have never really captured the public imagination in the way that the X-Men have. And the only reason that Ms. Marvel, Kamala Khan, was created as an Inhuman was because making her an X-Man was not available to the creative team at the time she was created. Had they been able to make her a mutant and have her as one of the X-Men, they'd have done it. They couldn't because of policy, so they didn't. And that's now really, really, really inconvenient because Marvel has got the X-Men back as movie characters and having completely stuffed up their attempt to bring the Inhumans to the screen, they've now decided to reverse their policy. And now we simply don't talk about Inhumans and everybody's got to be a mutant. Which is why in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Ms. Marvel is a mutant. They dropped that hint pretty heavily in the TV show. We've talked about it before. We're on strike. We're not talking about it now. That meant that Ms. Marvel on screen was very different to Ms. Marvel in the comics. And with Ms. Marvel featuring as one of the three main protagonists in a forthcoming movie, which we're not going to talk about for now, creates a problem. Because the hope clearly is when the Marvel's movie finally comes out, that will drive people to the comic book. Now, I've got to be honest, as a comics retailer who owns a store that lives inside a cinema, that's not really been my experience. But hey, people are optimistic. And there was a feeling, I think, at Marvel that, well, if she's a mutant on screen, but an inhuman in the comics, that's going to confuse people. Now, again, actually, I think that's cobblers because they never mention that Ms. Marvel is an inhuman. I happen to know that she's an inhuman. I understand that that's the reason she has superpowers, but they don't mention that ever in the comic anymore, and there's no need to. You know, Spider-Man doesn't go around going, hi, I'm Spider-Man. Did you know I was bitten by a radioactive spider? He never has it. No, he has his powers. We understand that he does. And, you know, now the origin story is out of the way, we don't really worry about it. Same, I suspect, would be true of Ms. Marvel, but never mind. Marvel Comics doesn't have to respect our intelligence, and so it's not going to. And so, as reported on this very show not all that long ago, Ms. Marvel died. She was killed in action in somebody else's comic. People were cross. It was a whole thing. If you remember my reporting on the subject, I was cross, not because they'd killed the character, although I was disappointed about that, but because I knew the character wasn't going to stay dead. At the time they killed her, Marvel mutants were effectively immortal. They were able to be reborn on the island of Krakoa if they were killed. And sure enough, Ms. Marvel dies, everyone's sad, the readership are angry, and then she's reborn unexpectedly on the island of Krakoa, because although nobody knew that she was a mutant, she's a mutant, and so that's fine then. And so Kamala Khan is back. She's exactly like she used to be, except now it's acknowledged that as well as being an inhuman, which we will never speak of again, I suspect, she's a mutant and eligible to join the X-Men. That's it, really. That's the change. That's all they've done. Issue one of her new comic, in which she wears an entirely new superhero costume that's exactly like the old one, except now it's in X-Men colours, and I honestly don't think that will stick. I suspect she'll be back in blue and red before too much longer. But anyway, issue one of 
that new comic hits the stands this week. And do you know what? I would probably have mentioned it. But I probably wouldn't have made this amount of fuss about it were it not for one key factor. It is co-written by one Iman Villani. Now, that name may not mean too much to you, but it is the same name as the girl who plays Ms. Marvel in the TV show that we're not going to talk about because we're on strike. Now, that could be an incredible coincidence, but in fact, it is not because it is indeed the same person. So the actor who plays Ms. Marvel on screen is co-writing the comic that features Ms. Marvel on the page. Now, I do get quite cynical about this kind of thing. It's the sort of thing I would have simply dismissed as stunt casting. Were it not for the fact that I already know that Iman Vellani is, in fact, a massive nerd and a huge Ms. Marvel fan. And she was before she got the part. So is this young woman who has no comics writing experience to speak of getting this opportunity simply because she plays the character on screen? Oh, God, yes, almost certainly. I mean, the number of 16 year old girls who are massive fans of Ms. Marvel who would love the opportunity to write the comic is, I suspect, quite high. Are any of them going to get that chance? No, no, of course they're not. So, yes, uh, at least on one level, the only reason she's getting this opportunity is because she plays the character on screen. But that doesn't mean they'd have let her do it if she wasn't any good, didn't have any good ideas and couldn't do it well. Obviously, obviously, I am a cynical person and I am more than aware that co-written by somebody can mean a multitude of things. It could mean that they did, you know, a good, sizable chunk of the work. Or it could mean they were vaguely aware that it was happening and their names on the cover just for funsies. Objectively and realistically, I clearly cannot know what's going on here. Uh, time will tell. Uh, I suspect if Iman Vellani never gets her name on any, the cover of anything else, it will be because she's not really a writer. And, you know, this was a publicity stunt. I'm choosing to believe otherwise. I'm choosing to believe that we will see Iman Vellani's name on the covers of many more comics in the future. Having, you know, yes, been given a very fortunate break, I suspect she will go on and forge something of a career. Maybe it won't be her main career, but my goodness, nobody can do just one job anymore, can they? I certainly can't. And, you know, I really rather like it. I, I love the idea that somebody who's involved in the on-screen version of something is also really involved in the comics version of that character. I think that can only be good for comics, and it can only be good for comics adaptations. So more of this. Of course, every time something brilliant happens, something has to go and cast a dark shadow across it. And so it is with the comics news this week. See, for as long as I've been reading comics, which is very nearly 40 years now, people have been predicting that comics are doomed, that there is no hope, that soon there will be no comics. And you know what? 
for very nearly 40 years, the people who've been saying that have been objectively completely wrong. But they've never gone away. And we are in the midst of another such flap. As people tell me, and everybody else who would listen, that comics are doomed, nobody's reading them anymore, kids don't read comics anymore, they all read manga, and something must be done. I have a couple of reactions to that. The first of which is, mate, if kids are reading manga, then comics aren't doomed, because comics are manga. But of course, that's not what the people who say comics are doomed mean when they talk about comics. What they mean are the comics they read when they were kids. And what that means now for those people is the comics of the 90s. When I first started reading comics, it was the comics of the 60s and 70s that were being treated like this. But it's basically nostalgia. It's it's that thing that middle aged people have and old people have when they look at what young people are doing. Don't recognize it as exactly what they did when they were young and therefore think that young people must be doing it wrong. Lord knows I've been guilty of doing that myself. It's something that you have to be careful of, because if you're not, you end up coming up with solutions to non-existent problems that will, if implemented, make things worse. See almost everything any tech bro has ever postulated. And you will see what I mean. Anyway, why am I mentioning this? Well, Mark Miller, who is... A comics writer of some renown. Uh, Not a man I've always agreed with, uh, but a writer of some renown and some skill, I have to say, has expressed the belief that the way comics retailers can be saved, so he's talking about saving me, which, you know, I'm grateful, is if the big publishers stop messing around with all this creator-owned nonsense and get some big-name writers perhaps even people who've kind of stopped writing now, back on the big-name characters. It's what will bring punters in. It's a view to which he's entitled. I I don't actually see why he's getting quite so much flack over this as he is, but I do think he's wrong, because that would work if all we wanted to do was sell more of the same to the same people. As a retailer, not only do I not want to do that for creative reasons, I don't want to do that for still being in business in 10 years' time reasons either, because what I want to do is get new people, young people, picking up comics and reading them and enjoying them and coming back for more. And I actually think the way we do that is more of what we were talking about a minute ago. More of young people with name recognition amongst young people coming in and writing stuff that they want to read and getting anyone who's got a story they want to tell to come and tell their story, to make that possible. To ditch the whole idea that in order to be successful in comics, you have to sell millions of units. No one's ever done that. But this whole backward-looking thing of comics aren't as good as they used to be, therefore let's do what we were doing 30 years ago, never worked. Ever. So, why am I reporting this? 
Well, because I want to encourage you to try something new, I guess. Oh, look, if I'm talking about this, it's clearly a slow news week. Let's talk about something else. Still clicking my fingers. Anyway, since all of that news was a bust, let's go somewhere where there is good stuff happening. Okay, first of all, did you see the moon? Seriously, did you? If not, what are you doing? It's been all over the news and all you've got to do is look up. If you've been living under a rock for the last week, you might be wondering what I'm talking about. We are currently experiencing a blue supermoon. Now, what does that mean? Well, a blue moon is quite simply the second full moon in a month. They happen every so often. Not something to do with calendars. And it doesn't matter. No, what matters is that we have a supermoon. Now, a supermoon is a phenomenon that's always existed, but it's only been called that for a relatively short while. Uh, the term was actually coined by an astrologer, which is about the only time I'm quoting an astrologer ever. Um, a guy called Richard Knoll uh, to refer to the point when the full moon is at its closest point around the orbit. So. When the moon is at perigee, that is to say the closest point to Earth in its orbit, and full at the same time. The Earth's, like most orbits in the solar system, the moon's orbit around the Earth is not circular. I don't care what they told you in primary school, it isn't. It's an ellipse. Now that means sometimes it's closer to Earth than others. Those of you who paid careful attention to Father Ted will know that some things look small because they're small and some things look small because they're far away. And if you bring a far away thing closer, it looks bigger. And that's basically what a supermoon is. The moon is currently full and at perigee. It is at pretty much its closest point to Earth in its orbit. Um, around about 357,344 kilometres, in fact, away from Earth, which honestly, 344 kilometer. That that 44 strikes me as um, probably claiming more, more accuracy than you've actually got. But let's just say around 357,000 kilometers. Now that's a long way, but the moon's quite big, and that's actually a reasonable fraction closer than it normally is. So it's going to look bigger than usual. About 14% bigger. Noticeably bigger, in other words. Now, when it's full, that looks impressive. And last night, if you're listening to this on the day it drops, last night was the 30th of August 2023. It looked stunning. Absolutely stunning. If you didn't see it, you have another chance this evening. Just Seriously, just look out of the window anytime after 10 p.m. and it's gonna look great. Bright, huge and beautiful. And honestly, just sometimes you, well, just sometimes I need to remind myself what it is I love about astronomy. And it's just things being beautiful. And speaking of things in the sky that are beautiful, if you happen to be looking out at the moon, 
Take a look at Saturn too. If you look sort of south, southeast-ish, you will see a very bright star in the sky. That star is not a star. That star is Saturn. It is currently in opposition to the sun, which means that it is at its brightest. It is, it, it is basically in full sunlight from our perspective, which makes it shine so very brightly indeed. If you can put any kind of magnification onto Saturn in the next week or so, even if it's only binoculars, you don't need a... If you've got a flash astronomical telescope, yay you, use it. Okay, if you're ever going to get your dusty old telescope out of the wardrobe and actually use it this week, look at Saturn, is the time. If you don't have a fancy astronomical telescope, use binoculars. Any kind of magnification at all on Saturn right now will look completely stunning. Saturn and Jupiter, I think, are the two most beautiful objects in the solar system that you can see from here. Earth doesn't count. So if you ever wondered what all the fuss about astronomy was about, check them out and you'll see. And you'll either be hooked or you have no soul. And so on to the big space news for this week. And honestly, I am so happy about this. I simply cannot tell you. It is such good news. Last week, we reported very briefly that Chandrayaan-3 had in fact landed on the surface of the moon. India has become the first nation to land something in the southern polar region of Earth's moon, which is seriously no small feat. The Russians tried and failed last week. So, you know, this is not a straightforward thing. Now, it's beginning to do its science. And it's doing it in ways that are no less impressive. Having landed, the Chandrayaan 3's rover ramped down, which apparently is what we're calling it now, from the lander and took India for a walk on the moon. I'm using now the language of the Indian Space Agency. And do you know what? Hyperbolic it is, but I think we can probably allow them that, really. I'd, I'd be hyperbolic too if I just achieved what they've achieved. The rover, which is called Pragyan, which is the Sanskrit word for wisdom, I am told, I do not speak Sanskrit, was taken to the moon aboard the lander, uh, which I think is called Vikram. And from there... Uh, kind of slid down onto the lunar surface and it's now going to sort of wander around amongst the rocks and crat craters collecting data and images to be sent back to earth for analysis uh, this is what rovers do it's carrying two particular scientific instruments which are going to try and find out what minerals are present on that area of the lunar surface and study the chemical composition of the soil um, now, Pragyan cannot communicate directly with Earth. What it's actually going to do is send the information back to the lander. The lander will then send the information back to the orbiter, uh, which is Chandrayaan-2, still orbiting the moon. That will then send the information back to Earth. It says it's a fairly complicated communications system and what it means is the stuff that was going down to the moon doesn't have to have sort of massively complicated communications kit aboard which simplified things quite substantially 
So they've managed to land this thing at the start of the lunar day, which is four weeks long by in, in Earth money. Uh, so they've got four Earth weeks of daylight uh, to do their exploration, uh, which gives them 14 days, not only when they can see what they're doing, but also to charge their batteries using solar power. Once night falls, uh, the batteries will obviously discharge. We don't know yet whether they'll have enough charge in those batteries to restart everything the next time the area of the moon that they're on emerges into daylight. Hopefully it will. If it doesn't, it doesn't matter. The mission's still been a success already. What it might be able to tell us, the reason this matters, is we think there is water ice in those parts. Now, if there is, that could be incredibly useful in the future, not only to enable any future moon base to, you know, drink, but also you can use water to make hydrogen, which is basically rocket fuel. So that would mean you could get propellant for ships going further into the solar system, let's say, oh, I don't know, Mars, from the moon. Now, this might be counterintuitive, but getting water from the moon and using it as fuel might actually be more cost effective and significantly easier to do than taking that fuel up from Earth. It's hard to get things off Earth. Earth gravity is powerful. Lunar gravity is significantly less. It's about a third. So it could be a really important stepping stone out into the rest of the solar system. But before we get all excited about stuff like that, I really want to emphasise what an achievement this was. Lunar 25, the Russian spacecraft, crashed into the moon just days earlier. What Chandrayaan did was essentially the same manoeuvre, but it did it right. It's very difficult to land on the moon because it has no atmosphere, which means you can't use parachutes, which means if you are going to slow yourself down to a speed at which your spacecraft can make contact with the surface and not be destroyed, you have to use retro rocket braking. That's reasonably complicated. Last Wednesday, when this thing touched down, they managed to reduce the lander speed from 1.68 kilometers per second, that's pretty quick, to almost zero, which meant the landing it made with the lunar surface was fairly soft and certainly an impact that the machine could survive. Uh, it's shown us so far with pictures, uh, the terrain around here is gonna be tricky to traverse. Uh, it's, it's uneven, there's a lot of craters and boulders and that kind of stuff. But it, So it's giving us really important information. The other thing it's done, incidentally, uh, and this isn't a script, this is an ad lib, so I don't have the information, all the information to hand, um, but 
Chandrayaan-2, the orbiter, has recently overflown one of the Apollo mission landing sites and taken some pretty good pictures of what's left of the lunar excursion module, uh, sort of the the legs bit that didn't blast back up into lunar orbit to take the astronauts home, which really should put an end to all of the ridiculous conspiracy nonsense about whether Apollo actually went to the moon or not. It won't, because conspiracy-minded people will never accept fact as a reason to change their minds about the conspiracy that they believe. Um, we'll probably do an episode on this, actually, because it's fascinating. But, you know, there'll be a reason why they find a reason to explain this away and say, oh, no, 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 that's not proof of anything. It's all or, or it's all faked, which is the other fallback. But still, it's nice. That I, As somebody who has no such delusions, it's nice to see the pictures just because they're historical sites now. And sooner or later, there will be people living on the moon. And, you know, those landing sites, those Apollo sites, they really will be ancient monuments. So there's a thing to think of. Anyway, we will leave space around about there. And we will move on to... Except, as is so often the case, this isn't really science, it's engineering. But as previously noted, I don't have an engineering jingle. So what are you going to do? Anyway, um, I thought it would be a good time to take a look at self-driving cars because they've been in the news again. And I think we'll start with why they've been in the news again, because it's a really nice demonstration of what the problem with self-driving cars continues to be. As is the case with so many other things, the the main voice behind pushing self-driving car technology has been Elon Musk, who has been very, very keen to introduce this technology into his Tesla vehicles. And as a result, he took his Tesla and its full self-driving or FSD software for a bit of a, a public joyride last week uh, around San Francisco. Now, there's a lot to prove here because there's been a lot of doubt around the FSD program. Uh, yeah, we keep being told self-driving cars are literally months away and then months later, they're still literally months away. So Musk got into his Tesla with a co-worker uh, at Tesla uh, Tesla, Tesla's, Tesla's engineering headquarters in uh, Palo Alto, California, which I think is near San Francisco, uh, and set off on a bit of a road trip to test out FSD version 12, which Musk claims will be the first FSD version out of beta testing. So the first thing ready to genuinely go live. Because He's a showman, or perhaps because he believes in transparency. I mean, it, it depends how cynical you want to be about Musk, really. Uh, whatever his motivations, Musk live-streamed the entire ride on Twitter. He doesn't call it that, but I still do. 
The result was a 45 minute video which has had well over 11 million views. Uh, in fact, we were probably pushing 15 million at this point. Now, the main change to previous versions of the FSD software is that the autonomous driving capabilities will be enabled entirely by neural networks instead of being pre-programmed, which is to say this machine is reacting to stuff in real time and essentially making stuff up as it goes along. Now, that's not necessarily as scary as that sounds. That's what you and I do every time we drive the car. We see stuff, we respond. It's not a pre-programmed response. It's an instinctive response. In the video, Musk demonstrates how his self-driving Tesla successfully navigates various areas. You know, he took it through a construction site, stopped at stop signs, went round a roundabout, uh, a situation which most Americans that are human can't really cope with. That apparently roundabouts aren't a thing over there. Uh, but these are all things. I mean, the reason that matters, these are all things that have flummoxed um, full self-driving software from Tesla in the past. Uh, and so Musk is behind the wheel and he's making a bunch of claims. You know, he's saying it can read signs without ever being taught to read. We didn't put in a line of code that says stop at a stop sign. Musk is saying you know, that this computer is doing it itself. However, the test was not completely flawless. Uh, early in the drive, uh, you can clearly see that the car is in the wrong lane or the right lane if you're British. Unfortunately, this wasn't in Britain. So, oops. Um, it tried to run a red light. Uh, Musk actually intervened at that point and stopped that happening. But surely the whole point of self-driving is that you don't have to do that. Um, and so Musk, you know, moseyed around um, the, the sort of Palo Alto area and he broke the law. Uh, he uses his phone whilst driving, which even in a self-driving car is illegal under California law. Um, now, a first offence is like a, a 20 buck fine. So it's not like there's any point in prosecuting him for that. I, it, the biggest problem Musk is going to have with a $20 fine is the concept of a figure that low. Uh, but also the rules of engagement in California are that a police officer has to see you do it with their own eyes, which clearly they didn't. Um, the video evidence exists, but that is not admissible in court in these circumstances. So, yeah, OK. Uh, but thoughtless, Elon, thoughtless. Uh, and also, in fact, a breach of Tesla's own policies, because Tesla clearly state that if you are using self-driving mode in a Tesla, you should keep your hands on the wheel at all times, which he does not do. Now, I get it. I get why he, does, he doesn't. He wants to demonstrate that this is a machine that can drive itself. But even so, I, yeah. it's not the most irresponsible thing he did. Of course, the most irresponsible thing he did. Uh, was Google Mark Zuckerberg's address and suggest he would now go round and challenge into the, that fight they keep not having. Uh, now, he argues that this is not, in fact, doxing because anyone can Google Zuckerberg's address. The point is that most people don't do that because it's not a normal thing to do. I don't know. Anyway, um, FSD version 12 will not be available to the public until next year, 2024, at 
the earliest. Um, we don't know how many more beta versions Tesla will re release before version 12. Uh, the most current version currently available on Tesla is version 11.4. There's a lot of decimal places you can go to before you get to V12. Uh, I actually, again, genuinely, I, I like to dunk on Musk because I don't like him. I think he's a menace for all kinds of reasons. But actually, I don't have an issue with self-driving cars. And if Tesla can produce one that actually works, I will be pleased because... Although it's a bit creepy, I, I, mean, I am uneasy about robots driving around our streets, which is effectively what a self-driving car is. But, but, people kill people with cars all the time. Robots have, in fact, killed people with cars already. And in fact, Tesla is facing a couple of lawsuits in the next few weeks. But... Nevertheless, I actually think genuinely self-driving cars will probably, once they are widely implemented, increase road safety and reduce traffic deaths because humans are terrible judges of pretty much everything. Also, the other thing you can do as soon as you have a computer driving every car on the road then those computers will be able to communicate. So that lag you get at traffic lights, where everybody waits a fraction of a second before they move to make sure that the person in front of them is moving, which means that you may not have started moving before the lights change again. That's eliminated because every single car in the queue at the traffic lights can be communicating not just with every other car in the queue, but with the traffic lights themselves. So that as soon as the lights go green, every car starts moving at once in synchronicity, like a train. That will decrease congestion. It really will. And, you know, other things like you've got a blind corner. Well, if cars can talk to other cars that are in a certain radius of them, your car will know if something's coming or not. And, you know. I don't think I will ever be comfortable not looking anyway. The point is, if the technology can reduce the need for looking, the fact that you don't see something won't be a problem. So generally speaking, I'm in favour of the technology. I think it will probably help. I think it will make roads nicer places to drive. I think it will make roads safer places to drive. And while it is always tempting to point at Elon Musk and laugh at the ridiculous things he does, this one might, in fact, turn out to be good. So let's bear that in mind. Let's be honest, if we want to make fun of Elon Musk, all you really have to do is go and look at Twitter. I mean, don't go and look at Twitter. It's an, it's, Twitter's always been a dumpster fire. Okay, uh, that point is made often and it is well made. Elon Musk is simply making it worse uh, and he's making it worse in so many hilarious ways that uh, whilst I regret very much the passing of the bits of Twitter that I really liked, getting an object lesson in the destructive power of hubris has been a thing. Anyway, with that, we'll leave science there. 
And so we move on to what is becoming our regular comics history feature. Now, this might be a two-parter because there's a lot I want to say here. But it's something that I think everybody needs to understand if they're going to understand current comic culture. So we're going to have to talk about the 90s. Buckle up, kids. It's going to be a bumpy ride. Now, in order to explain the 90s, I have to first go back to before the 90s, to when I, even I, was young. Comics in the 90s, especially if you were British, but this applied to a lesser degree in the United States as well. Comics was a frustrating hobby because you could never be completely sure that you were going to be able to get the next issue of whatever comic it was you just read. Specialist comic shops did exist, but they were few and far between. As I believe I've mentioned on the show before, I grew up in Doncaster. My nearest comic shop was in Sheffield, which had, and I think still has, too. For a kid, I mean, I was a teenager at the time I'm talking about, so I couldn't drive. So as a kid, I had to get public transport into Sheffield if I wanted to buy comics. That was an undertaking, basically. Uh, and so, I mean, full confession, in the sixth form, I went at least once a week because I used to skip history. There was one day in the week when I had history first thing and then a free lesson. And so instead of cycling to school, I would cycle to Doncaster train station, get the train to, to Sheffield, go to the comic shop and then get back to school in time for whatever the next lesson I was prepared to go to was. Um, I don't encourage that sort of behaviour, and you wouldn't get away with it now. The 80s were, oh, so fantastic in so many ways. But most people got their American comics from newsagents, and newsagents were not reliable at all. The newsstand, the American equivalent of the newsagent, was kind of the same deal. They would buy comics, they would stick them on the shelf, and they didn't really worry about what issue number they'd got. So you would end up doing a, a fairly regular, and this was a, a regular feature of my Saturdays for several years. You would you would do a tour of all of the shops every week to make sure that you could find the comics that you were particularly looking for. And if you didn't find them, you'd buy any old tat. And comic shops themselves struggled. There was no one place to go to get your comics if you were a retailer, and that made life complicated, especially if you were looking to get the more obscure stuff. That changed in the early 90s. At the same time, and we'll get, we'll get into why in a minute, at the same time, big things were happening in comics culture. Prior to the 90s, the general business model of comics was work for hire. The big companies employed writers and employed artists to work on their the, the company's proprietary intellectual property. Batman, Spider-Man, Wonder Woman, all of those. And the work you did as a writer or an artist remained the property of the big companies. And if you created a character for the big companies, then the rights to that character remained with the company. That had been the case 
for decades, decades and decades and decades. And people were beginning to get hacked off with it. Something that was beginning to happen throughout the 80s was that people were starting to pay attention to who the writers and artists were. Prior to that, people hadn't really. One of the reasons that uh, Siegel and Schuster had such a hard time getting recognition for having created Superman and made so much money for the companies that owned Superman was that in the 1930s when they created Superman, it just wasn't a thing you did to credit writers and artists. And so the, the culture of doing that just wasn't there. You know, you, you were hired to write some pages. You wrote some pages. You got paid. That's it. Our, our work here is done. Our, our obligation to you is finished. By the 80s, people were beginning to say, no, hang on a minute. These people do deserve some recognition. There'd been a lot of stuff about Siegel and Schuster when the Superman movie came out in 1977, I want to say. It might have been 78. Current writers and artists were kind of saying, yeah. Yeah, they deserve that recognition and they deserve some financial remuneration for the contribution that they made. And do you know what? So do we for what we've done. And readers were beginning to say, well, I really liked that Frank Miller story on Daredevil. Where can I read more Frank Miller? Where can I read more Alan Moore? Where can I read, you know, more of these people? And that meant the standard Marvel and DC contracts were starting to not look as good as they once had. This came to a head at the very start of the 90s, when a group of writers and artists at Marvel Comics decided they really didn't like the contracts they were being made to sign. The two that particularly stood out for me were Todd McFarlane and Rob Liefeld, although you know the likes of Jim Lee and stuff were also involved in this. It was very, very clear. People were going and buying Spider-Man comics because Todd McFarlane was drawing them. And that's the only reason they were buying Spider-Man. Rob Liefeld was having a similar experience. Jim Lee was having a similar experience. But Marvel Comics were still kind of saying, yeah, well, you get your page rate. Well, what do you want? And, you know, these are creative people. They had ideas of their own. They had characters they wanted to introduce. But if they pitched them to Marvel... Marvel was basically saying, yeah, brilliant. We'll own it, though. And Todd McFarlane and the likes of, of, of him were saying, well, we don't want you to own it. We want it. This is ours. I'm, I made this. So two things would happen in very close proximity that changed comics forever. One was the founding of Image Comics. With hindsight, founding Image was a no-brainer. If you look at what Image Comics has become, clearly... Everyone involved was going to get stupidly rich, and they did. But actually, they didn't know that then. They didn't know how it was going to turn out. And founding Image Comics was actually a risk. What is Image Comics? Why is it special? Well, a bunch of people, including Todd McFarlane and Eric Larson and Jim Lee and Robert Kirkman and others, got together and said, look, we want to make things that we own. We can't get the things we own published anywhere and retain ownership of them. So we're going to have to do this ourselves. And they, Image Comics, basically, the idea is if you publish something through Image Comics, you get to use their network, you get to use their contacts, you get to use their distribution. 
you get access to their printing and all of that stuff. Uh, they might be able to match you with an editor. But essentially, you turn up as a creative person or a creative team at Image Comics and say, here is the comic we want to make. This is what we want to do. I'm the writer. They're the artist. We've got a letterer over here. We want to make this. Image Comics says, go for it. We won't pay you until there's money to pay you with. So you don't get paid until you've sold. But everything you create is yours. You own the character. If you go on and sell the movie rights, that money is yours. We'll take a small percentage, like a finder's fee. But essentially, you own it. If you want to license a range of lunchboxes, action figures, toy cars, costumes, whatever it is you want to do with your IP, it's your IP. And you get that money. We don't own it. That was revolutionary. And it's how an awful lot of comics companies now operate. Creator-owned comics are the driving force in Anglophone comics right now. They have been for a good decade and a half. And it's why the quality of comics is so high right now and why you can get comics in so many genres. The reason superheroes dominated for so long is because the only two big comics in Anglophone, big comics, big publishers in Anglophone comics, Marvel and DC, were focused pretty much solely on superheroes. Creator-owned comics just blew everything apart. A lot of creator-owned comics crash and burn horribly. Many, however, are successful. Now, that model is entirely down to a bunch of, well, depending how you want to view them, either visionary young people or really arrogant young people at the beginning of the 90s getting together and saying, do you know what, to hell with everybody else, let's do it. That was Image Comics. We'll come back to them. The other thing that changed everything was Diamond. Diamond Comics Distribution. Oh boy. Now, as a retailer, I spend a very large percentage of my week either shouting at Diamond for something they've done wrong, pleading with Diamond to fix something that's gone wrong, or complaining about Diamond to anyone who will listen. But Diamond changed comic shops forever. Diamond was, for a very long time, a monopoly supplier. If you wanted to get your comic into comic shops, you needed to get it into the Diamond Comics catalogue. But if you did that, any comic shop anywhere in the world with a Diamond account could find you and stock you. And so it made it easier for people to get their work into comic shops. In a pre-internet world, meant that people could get their stuff out there in ways they couldn't before. And if you were a comics retailer, it meant that you could reliably order stuff. So a one-stop shop made life easier. Those two things coincided with, and although I cannot prove this, I believe triggered the comics explosion of the 1990s. It was a crazy, crazy time. It is a time that it is popular now to dunk on. They called it the comics explosion because suddenly there were so many more titles and not just titles, but so many more publishers. We'd gone from a world where there was Marvel and DC and then maybe a couple of right weird little indie publishers 
that you might find down the back of the comic shop occasionally. We went from that to Marvel and DC still being big, but image comics were there and they were just as big and just as loud and just as impactful. Dark Horse comics, which had been around for a while, suddenly exploded in size and popularity and recognition. And the likes of Eclipse and Being Hell and Tops, the trading card people, and so many others were getting into comics and getting their stuff out there and selling their stuff and being successful and making money. And it seemed like it would go on forever and, and then the market would be limitless. And I've got to say, an awful lot of it was gross. But so much of it was not. So much of it was amazing. If you look back, there was a huge amount of innovation and a huge amount of change. Suddenly it became more or less acceptable for grown-up people to read comics in public where other people could see them doing it. It was still a niche hobby. It was still a weird, geeky thing to do. But it was a weird, geeky thing that more and more people were doing. and. More and more people were talking about. Even the big boys got on board. DC Comics created a whole line, a whole imprint of comics that were designed to me more cerebral, more intellectual. They called it Vertigo. Under the editorship first of Karen Berger, that imprint published all kinds of weird stuff, including, but not exclusive to, Hellblazer, featuring John Constantine, although Constantine had been around before Vertigo happened, but was absorbed into it, along with Swamp Thing, who, which we talked about last week. Swampy became a Vertigo character. Uh, but the one that everybody remembers is, of course, Neil Gaiman's Sandman. I was, at the time, a very pretentious young goth, and so clearly Sandman was made for me. Really, over at Image, Todd McFarlane was creating Spawn. Rob Liefeld was creating Youngblood. Jim Lee was doing his thing. I can't remember what it was. Eric Larson was creating Savage Dragon. And all kinds of superhero -y stuff was happening over at Image. And for a moment, for a brief, glorious moment, it looked as though comics were going to take over the world. Next week, we'll find out why they didn't. Because, dear listener... It was all about to go horribly, horribly wrong. Next week, we'll talk about why and how and what happened next. But for now, we are running out of time. And so we will move on to the Geek Community Notice Board. And the very first thing we will talk about is D&D &D Boy Band, who are now up and running with their new D&D &D campaign, Streaming on Twitch and YouTube, I think, all over the place. Check them out. Just Google D&D &D Boy Band and you'll find their campaign. Hugely entertaining. Give it a watch. We are coming up on September the 18th to the 200th Geek Pub Quiz. But there are some Geek Pub Quizzes happening before that. Uh, I would refer you to the Geek Pub Quiz social media accounts for more information about all of those things. And... While you're at it, looking at the old social medias, I would invite you to also check out what's going on at Geek Street on Oxford Street in Harrogate. 
There's an awful lot of stuff happening there. Yarn night on Wednesdays. You've got your homeschool socials on Friday mornings. All kinds of stuff going on. Way more than I can fit in to here. So just go and have a look. If you like geeky stuff, there's something going on that will appeal. And if you're passing, drop in, have a coffee, chat to the staff. They're all lovely. I will also just take a second to give a wee plug to Destination Venus's own social medias. I mentioned last week that we've expanded our social media offering. Uh, we are still on Twitter or whatever Elon is calling it this week. We're using that less because, well, frankly, it's becoming less useful. We are also on Facebook and the other two meta platforms, threads and Instagram. As it happens, I am not happy with Meta's policy on what it does with your information in terms of training AI. And so we may be disappearing off those platforms in the not too distant future. We'll keep you advised. But we are also available on Spoutable. That's the one with the whale. We're available on Hive, although we rarely post there because it's awkward. And we're available on Blue Sky, which is hard to get onto. You need an invite. But once you're on, Blue Sky, I think, is our preferred social media because it's still civilised. If you have been able to scare up a Blue Sky invitation from somewhere, come and find us. We're um, destinationvenus.bsky.social over on the Blue Skies. We're also on Tumblr. I think the only one we're not really on the, the, the major ones now is Mastodon because we still can't get our heads around it. I'm 51. What do you want from me? Mastodon's way too complicated. Uh, and for the same reason, we're also not on TikTok because I genuinely don't know what we'd do with it. So come find us. And actually, if you've got any advice about what we might do with TikTok, we'd be interested to hear it. Info at destinationvenus.co.uk or drop into the shop and have a chat. Uh, also, you know, that, that email address, info at destinationvenus.co.uk, that is how you will find us if you want to comment about the show, if you want to give us suggestions about the show. Or if you've got anything you want to promote on the Geek Community Notice Board. It is free. It is there for you. All you have to do is be geeky and tell us about it. That's info at destinationvenus.co.uk. We look forward to hearing from you. And with that, we're about out of time. Where does it go? Honestly, where does it go? How are we nearly in September? Ah, time's winged chariot draws ever near, does it not? And before we go, still looking for any kind of views you may have or experiences you may have had about or of fandom, your, your fandom experiences with info at destinationvenus.co.uk. Thank you, all the people who've responded. We want to hear more stories. So more of that, too. And that really is all we have time for. Uh, we will be back next week. There's a chance I might be away from the microphone, which would make it a special episode. So uh, do tune in and find out what we've got going on. Uh, I suspect I'm going to be talking about the moon. Yes, the moon feels topical for the first time in a long time. And so we're going to use that to delve deep into some of our history with the moon. So join us for that. And, uh, you know, the 90s comics and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, and we will look forward to seeing you then. Until we do, be kind to yourself. Be kind to absolutely everybody else. Stay safe. And above all else, stay geeky. See you soon.